The first reading, excuse me, is from chapter 32, <clears throat> verses 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Over to chapter 33 from verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Excuse me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Amen. Thank you, Maureen. Um, well, how good is it to get these long um, passages from Exodus and get this amazing story read to us and in our bones and reflect on it? That's what we're going to do in a moment. Uh, before we look at the passage, I uh, just I do have a, a sad announcement to make, uh, which is that um, many many of us were here a few weeks, a number of weeks ago, when I mentioned that. Um, uh, um, a, uh, someone who has connection to our church family, Sam XL, uh, is a young man who um, had motor neurone disease and was very unwell with that, uh, the son-in-law of Trevor and Lynn, um, and Sam passed away this week, uh, and his funeral will be held on the 3rd of July, Monday the 3rd of July, at Strathalbyn Uniting Church. Um, amidst the sadness, there is great hope and joy, because Sam came to a genuine and real faith in Christ 
um, not that long ago and was baptised uh, and that was such a joy and so we um, in our sadness know the hope and truth of the gospel uh, and there's great celebration in that. I'm going to pray uh, and then we're going to look at God's word. So let me pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you that in Christ we have hope, we have peace with you. Thank you that Sam found that hope and that peace and that now we know he is with you. Thank you, Father, that you are with us, that you have come to us um, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and by your spirit you still speak to us through your word. So we pray now as we, re- as we hear and we reflect on this passage from Exodus that you might be pleased to do that great miracle and open the eyes of our hearts to read your word, open our ears to hear you. Um, soften us, please, so that we might be changed and we might live more and more in the light of your wonder and grace to us in the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, a bit of a um, change of tone here. Um, uh, many of us will know the old Westerners. Uh, old Westerns, anyone a Western fan? Uh, yeah, there's a few of us out there. Um, a, a common way of switching between scenes while the action was taking place was for, for the narrator to say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. <laughs> That's right. Uh, then the camera switches back to the ranch where some other important thing is going on at the same time, like the Lone Ranger is tied up and his horse, Silver, chews through his ropes so he can go save the day or something like that. Um, something like that is happening here at this point in Exodus, except what's happening back at the ranch is no good thing. Uh, so remember the story so far. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He bore them on eagles' wings to bring them to himself. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, giving them his good law. And remember what they said back in chapter 24. So 24 verse 7, uh, Then he, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Uh, and then Moses goes back up the mountain, and as we've been reading it, that the glory of Yahweh comes down to the top of the mountain. We're told this glory looked like a consuming fire, And Moses stays up there for 40 days and nights. Uh, That's where he's been getting all those elaborate instructions for the building of the tabernacle that we looked at last week. Uh, So that Yahweh could come and dwell in the midst of his people and be with them in that tangible way. Uh, And then chapter 31, just before our reading, ends like this. So the end of chapter 31 says, verse 18... When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now, if you stop the story at this point, you'd think everything is going so well, <laughs> right? Everything is, it's, this is amazing. God has brought his people. I mean, there was a bit of grumbling earlier on, yes, but he's brought them to the mountain. He's given them his law, his covenant. Um, he's said to them, you, if you follow my covenant, you'll be a kingdom of priests, a light in the world. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, what you get, the very next sentence, as you read into verse, chapter 32, is one of, I think, the most tragic stories in the whole of the Bible. Despite everything, despite God's incredible grace to them, 
his miraculous works of power, despite their own promise to keep his covenant, all it took for this people to break their covenant relationship with the Lord, with Yahweh, was for them to get a bit bored. Um, yeah, Moses takes a bit too long for their liking. Um, you would have picked that up as we read through. I mean, uh, 40 days is a long time, right? It's a little bit under six weeks. But at the same time, they could still see God's glory on the top of the mountain, this fire. They knew he was still present there. They had heard Yahweh speak from the mountain, the, the Ten Commandments we looked at a few weeks back. But do you remember the very first two of those? Those Ten Commandments that the Yahweh gave to his people on the mountain? You shall have no other gods before me. Number one. Number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship, uh, to worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, so far, yes, great. They've agreed to this. But as the camera switches from the mountaintop back, back at the ranch down to the plains, what do we see? Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who's Moses' brother, <clears throat> and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So uh, you know the story. We had it read out. They get Aaron to make a god like, kind of like the ones that they would have been familiar with back in Egypt. Uh, not, not this God of fire, the one who is who he is and who will be who he will be. <clears throat> they want a domesticated God, a God they can see and touch and feel, a God that they're in control of. Uh, it turns out, uh, someone's said, they put it like this, um, it's much harder to get Egypt out of the people than it was to get the people out of Egypt. <laughs> Uh, so we heard the story. Aaron collects all the gold and makes, puts it in the fire, makes a, an idol out of, uh, of a golden calf, and the people worship it. They offer it sacrifices, and there's this chilling description in verse 6. Um, afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Um, you become like what you worship. Sort of a principle through the Bible, you become like what you worship, and these people sort of become like animals, is what you're supposed to read through this chapter. So this is a tragic moment, one of the most tragic moments in the Bible's story. And before we move on, I reckon it's helpful for us just to hear a little bit how the New Testament reflects on this event. So uh, 1 Corinthians 10 is the place to do that. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flick there. It'll be on the screen too. Um, we mentioned this briefly a few weeks ago, but 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is reflecting on what's happening here in the Exodus, uh, and he includes this episode, and he says this in verse 6, these things, happened as, uh, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. It's a quote from Exodus. 
We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So it's a sobering word the apostle gives here. He does go on to give this great word of hope. In verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And then he, he kind of wraps up in verse 14 with this just um, clear urge, urging of the people. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. So this incident in Exodus, it sort of becomes a bit of an archetype of idolatry in the Bible. And what Paul does, though, in the New Testament, I think is really helpful because he shows that, that idolatry isn't really about statues and external things. It's actually about the heart. Um, it can involve literal images and statues like we're reading in Exodus. But in another one of his letters, Paul says that greed is idolatry. Um, one recent catechism put it like this. It should be on the screen, this quote from the New City Catechism. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Trusting in created things rather than the creator for your hope and your happiness, for your significance, for your security. Which means... Anything can become an idol for you in your hearts, even good things, even good things. When they become God things, they become an idol. Work, achievement, family, relationships, money, influence, approval of others. Whatever you trust in for your hope and happiness, your significance and security... Friends, our idolatry is tragic. It's tragic because the idols of our hearts never actually deliver. They, they don't actually deliver on what they promise. They only take life. They never give it. It's, it's tragic, our idolatry, but it's also evil. It's sinful. Um, and it angers God. It's easy to look at the Israelites, isn't it? And to think, how could they possibly do that after all God has done for them? It's not so easy to look at yourself and think, how could I possibly do that after all God has done for me? And yet I do. All the time I entrust myself to created things rather than the creator. So we read in 1 Corinthians 10, God provides a way out from temptation. And when it comes to idolatry, his way out is to flee, to flee it, to run from it. 
So these chapters in Exodus, they expose the ugliness of idolatry. They kind of, um, we're meant to read this and think, how this is, this is unbelievable and ugly and horrible. They urge us, these chapters urge us to flee from our idols. But they don't just do that. It's possible to kind of flee from one idol just into the arms of another. Um, these chapters actually give us something much richer than just saying flee. They do do that, that it's important, but they give us something else. We don't just flee from one idol to another. We flee to the one who alone can satisfy and heal our hearts, who alone is worthy of our worship. Um, and just to help us see that, I'm, I'm going to focus on two other main characters in these chapters. Um, the first one is Moses. Uh, most of this action is... Uh, sorry, I've got an eyelash going in my eye. Apologies for that. Um, most of this section we're reading is taken up actually with this back and forth interchange between Moses and Yahweh, this conversation. It starts in uh, verse 7, which we did read out. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. And down in verse 9, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. And there's lots of difficult things in these chapters that um, have taken a, a lot of people a lot of time to think and write about, which we can't get into, uh, especially when it comes to the whole idea of God changing his mind, him relenting from sending destruction. I think it's important that we don't downplay that, actually. Um, God was going to destroy this nation, and if it wasn't for Moses speaking for them, presumably he would have. Now, psalm 106 reflects on this event. It's worth reading the whole psalm. Um, uh, verse 23, it says this, So he, Yahweh, said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them? So God really does relent from wiping them out because of Moses' prayers for them. But at the same time, I think there's, there's, there's more going on here that's important to see. As you read through, it's as if God is, is sort of inviting Moses to come back at him um, to, and to plead for his people. It's like God is raising Moses up as a mediator to stand in the breach between God and his people. So it's interesting, um, you look back at verse 7 of chapter 32, um, God calls them uh, Moses' people, whom Moses brought out of Egypt, right? But both God and Moses know who, who, really, who brought them out of Egypt, whose people are they? They're Yahweh's. They're God's people. Uh, or down in verse 10, God offers to make Moses into a great nation, but who had God already promised um, to make into a great nation? Abraham, not Moses. I think uh, through this, God is, is sort of inviting Moses to be this mediator, this in, to, to intercede, to stand in the breach, not because these people deserved it, but because of God's own faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. 
Uh, and that's exactly what Moses does as you read through. He calls, he, he, what Moses is doing all through these chapters is he's calling on God to act in line with the promises that he's already made, to act in line with who he has already revealed himself to be. Uh, that's what you see in these chapters. So down in verse 13, Moses says to God, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. See what he's doing here? He's saying, he's calling on God to act according to what God has already promised to do. And so God relents, he really relents, and, and Moses uh, but, uh, but all the way through, he's, God has also been raising up Moses as this intercessor, this mediator. Uh, Moses goes down the mountain uh, and he sees this horrific scene uh, in front of him and he smashes the tablets of the covenant um, so that they're kind of broken, a symbol of the, the broken relationship. He goes and confronts Aaron, his brother, and Aaron gives one of the lamest excuses you've ever heard. If you've read through the chapter during the week, maybe you've, you're familiar with this. Uh, he says, he basically says, look, the people gave me all this gold, I just chucked it in the fire and poof, out popped this calf. You know, like, what was I to do? <laughs> um, but we've already been told that Moses actually fashioned this idol himself. I mean, Aaron fashioned this idol. Um, so he's lying, and, uh, but he's sort of giving this lame excuse. But this situation Moses sees when he goes down is utterly out of control. People are running wild. And it's like the, the, the only thing that can bring some kind of order back into this scene is uh, through a terrible judgment. Uh, so God does punish the people through in the rest of this chapter. Many of them die, either at the hands of a group of faithful Levites whom Moses calls, or through a plague that God later sends. So there is punishment on the people here, but he doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't wipe them out. He remains faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham, just as Moses asked him to be. Um, which is good news, right? However, there's still some kind of bad news as you keep reading. Um, you go into chapter 33 of Exodus, the story continues, and Moses is hit by this news from God. He says, okay, I'm not going to destroy the people, but I won't go with you. I won't, I'll send my angel to go with you, but I won't go with the people. They're too sinful. Um, they'd be destroyed if I did. Uh, God says, and again, Moses intercedes. He steps up as this mediator for his people. Um, 33 verse 13, he calls on God to remember that this nation is your people. Uh, God, this is quite interesting. God replies to him. We read this in verse 14. My presence will go with you and will give you rest. It's not easy to see in the English, um, but in the original language there, that's a singular you. So he's talking to Moses. God's saying, yes, uh, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest. But again, Moses pleads not for himself, but for his people. Um, Moses said to the Lord in verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, as in, not just with me, but with us. Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked. 
because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So there's lots in there, but the, the big kind of thing about Moses is he is this faithful mediator raised up by God himself. And through Moses interceding for them, um, urging God for his, to act for his people in line with the promises that he's already made, through that, God relents and restores his people. Um, it is, it's incredible to see Moses through this. But actually, God is the main character of the whole, of the whole Bible, <laughs> um, but also of these chapters. God is, God is actually, Yahweh himself is actually the main character. Uh, and so Moses has this series of conversations with God, and in the final one in this part, Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in this spectacular way. So Moses asks God to show him his glory. Um, just hold on to that. We're going to think about glory next week. Um, that's a really big theme of these last chapters. We're going to think about the whole idea of glory next week. But what God does... How God responds, he says he will reveal his goodness and his name. And the way God reveals himself in chapter 34, it's like this, these, these words of God grip the hearts and minds and the imaginations of God's people throughout all the Old Testament. They get repeated again and again. This self-description of God it's like people kind of cling to it, latch on to it. So um, Moses chisels out two new tablets to replace the first ones, and then he goes back up the mountain. And in 34 verse 5, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there and with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. So just as much as our world today, the world then was full of idols. Our idols look different, but we're, you know, we're all, you know, humanity is the same. John Calvin said our hearts are a factory of idols. Um, so in a world of idols, of people making up their own ideas about God, about who God is, what he should look like, he is the one true and living God revealing himself. Revealing his own heart. This is the answer to idolatry. To know him, not as you want him to be or as you think he should be, but as he reveals himself to be. To know him and to trust him. Not to trust the idols of this world. To trust him for your hope and happiness, your security and significance. And who is he? Who is this one? Verse 6, he passes in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the, great, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Probably he means there are thousands of generations. Uh, it's a, uh, but maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And you read those verses and it's like this, oh, relief can flood through you. This, this is the true God. 
as he has revealed himself to be. No idol is like this. This is a God of faithful love and grace and forgiveness. And yet, you ought to pick this up, reading through, right? There is also this tension that you find in God's name that he reveals to Moses here. You keep reading. He's the, he is the God who forgives sin. And yet, verse 7, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Sort of intergenerational effects of sin. So you see what, so what's going on there? At the same time as God being the God of faithful love, Yahweh is also the God of justice, who doesn't just sweep sin under the carpet, who is angry, not in, with a human anger that kind of flies off the handle. Uh, he has a holy, righteous, settled anger against the sin and wickedness that has so marred his people and his world. So you see this tension that's presented to us here? But a few things to notice. Notice in that description of God in these verses, notice how it's kind of lopsided. Um, The first and longest thing God reveals about himself is his compassion and mercy and love and then his justice. His love is to thousands of generations, his, his punishment to three or four. It's like it's kind of being built, this, this lopsidedness in what's being presented. God is just and holy and righteous and punishes sin, but his heart leans towards love and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, later on in Isaiah, Isaiah will call God's judgment his strange work. He must do it. He will do it, but he, his nature inclines towards mercy. But there is that tension there, right, that we get in these verses. And the tension carries all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, but it only gets resolved and it wonderfully gets resolved at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there that God's wrath and his mercy meet together. It's there that his justice is satisfied and his grace triumphs. Where his right anger against our idolatry and sin is poured out, but not on us, not on us, but on his son who willingly stands in the breach for us to bring us to God. Um, Moses wasn't perfect, but he is a sign pointing us to the true and perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to intercede for us. Um, here's how Hebrews 9 ref- reflects on this. He's sort of talking about um, this, these events in Exodus and the sacrificial system of the old covenant. Um, and then verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. See what he's saying there. Jesus, like Moses, stood in the breach. He had his name blotted out to free us, to free us from our idols, to bring us home. Moses offered to God to die with the people. Uh, He said, if you don't forgive them, let me die with them. Jesus dies for his people in order to win their forgiveness and bring us home to our eternal inheritance. Well, there's heaps in these chapters, isn't there? There's so much to reflect on and to chew over. I just want to wrap things up by really focusing on two possible ways that this might hit home for you, uh, for us as we gather today. And it all has to do with who we think God is. What, what is the nature of God um, that comes to your heart and your mind? We might think that's kind of a bit abstract and not worth thinking about. Actually, it's one of the most important questions that you can ever ask. Some of us need to hear that God is a God of justice, who is angry with our sin, and who does judge sin. Maybe you don't like to think of God like that. Um, You prefer a God of kindness and love, but not a God of justice. But to to do away with the the justice of God is basically, it is actually to make an idol in your heart, to set up a false God. And it empties God's love, actually, of its real depth and wonder and reality. God's love is so amazing because of his justice, because of his judgment. Otherwise, when you talk of God's love, it's just a weak thing that won't have any power to transform your life. Uh, Some of us are in danger of this. Others of us, though, need to hear that God is the God of mercy and grace and compassion and forgiveness, that through Jesus, his grace triumphs, and that if you're in Christ, he has poured out his faithful love on you. I think some of us are in danger of this, of kind of um, creating a God in our minds that is more harsh and strict and unforgiving than the God of the Bible. It can kind of seem more pious to believe that. Uh, It'll make you judgmental, which, you know, can kind of feel good. Um, But it'll probably also make you very insecure because you'll never be able to be at rest. And that's just as idolatrous, actually, at the end of the day. That kind of constructing, of that's just as idolatrous as believing in that vague God of empty love. See what the cross brings, it reveals to us, and that we see in this passage? The true God, the true God is the God of justice and mercy. Some of us need to have our hearts stirred by the justice of God, to repent of your sin, to flee from your idolatry, to have an urgency with the gospel in our community. Some of us actually need to be stirred by that. 
Others of us need to be softened to have your hearts washed and melted by the reality of God's amazing grace to you. You are a great sinner. Your heart is a factory of idols. Apart from Christ, you are under his judgment and your only refuge is God himself, the true God, Yahweh. And this is who he is. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger with you, abounding in love and faithfulness towards you, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving your wickedness and rebellion and sin. He does hate sin and punishes it. And in the gospel, in Christ, he has taken that punishment on himself for you, for you, because he loves you. So flee from your idols. They won't satisfy you anyway. They won't give you what you're looking for. Flee from your idols and come to him. Run to him. Come to him humbled by your sin. Come to him hungry for his grace. And he will satisfy. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today. We come to you. We thank you that through Christ we can approach your throne of grace with boldness and confidence, knowing that our sins are once and for all dealt with at the cross. That in Christ you have poured out your grace and compassion and love on us. Forgive us from constructing idols in our own hearts, whether it's things, um, money, power, relationships, or whether it's just um, false ideas about you. Uh, Help us, our God, to have our hearts and our minds gripped by the reality of who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be. May we flee from our idols, O God. Strengthen us to do that. And may we flee to you knowing and trusting, resting in and trusting ourselves to the reality of who you are the wonderful, gracious Father who welcomes us home. Help us to do that, O God, by your Spirit, we pray. And in Jesus' name, amen.